So where were you on January 6th, 2021? I remember very specifically where I was because one of my like five jobs is I'm an archivist uh, for a church denominational archives. And I was working with a researcher who I had worked with previously on his uh, dissertation research. And he was coming in doing some kind of secondary or supplemental research. And so he came in early in the morning and uh, we caught up and talked a little bit. And then I'd supply him with, you know, a few boxes full of folders of old letters from the 1930s that he was, that he was working through. And then I'd go into my office and do a little bit of work and come back out and check up with them. And as the, as the day went on, I started coming out and saying, have, have you seen any of what's going on with the, with the protests at the Capitol? He'd say, yeah, my, my brother-in-law was texting me. It seems, seems kind of interesting. I said, yeah, it does seem interesting. And then I'd go back to my office and come back out. I said, this is getting really interesting. He said, yeah, yeah. And then there came a point in the afternoon when it was clear that this was going beyond interesting. And so I came out and I said, this is going to be a day with a name, isn't it? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right. And in fact, he ended up kind of packing up early, leaving early to get home, be with his family. And I'm sure obsessively watch the coverage like I was doing in my office, like we were all doing. Um, but I don't know. Do you think that's true? Did it, did it become a day with a name? I mean, I think it did. I think if you say January 6th to someone, to them, that doesn't mean just any old January 6th. It was January 6th, 2021, right? Kind of like 9-11 has become a day cemented. Uh, we know exactly which 9-11 we're referring to. I, I think January 6th has become and will continue to be that for years to come. Right. So just like the day of the coup in Chile, it's the 9-11 you mean, right? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, but what about you? Where were, where were you on January 6th, if you remember? I, I remember pretty clearly. Um, and I remember because that was the day that I got my second COVID vaccination. Um, so Congrats. I, thank you. Yeah, I was fully vaccinated on, on um, Insurrection Day. So I, I hadn't heard anything all morning. So I think the first I hear about it, I've uh, just arrived back in my hometown um, and I'm scrolling through Twitter while I'm at the gas station filling up my car and like crowds outside of the Capitol uh, and keep refreshing the feed. And all of a sudden now Congress and the Senate are being evacuated. And so sort of similar to you, I'm starting to text some of my friends, like, are you paying attention to what's happening right now? This is going to be something significant. Uh, and I remember wondering at, at what point am I going to refresh the feed and find out that some high level representative has been either kidnapped or assassinated. Like I was, pretty convinced that something like that was about to happen. Well, I want to come back to talking about January 6th, in large part because I, f I feel like there's a significant portion of the population who has kind of memory hold everything that mm -hmm. happened and the, the realistic and reasonable fears that we had on that day while we were watching. 
It's, it's kind of astounding that you can have something like 30 or 40 percent of the population now who has just decided, oh, no, it wasn't a big deal. And I never thought it was. We've been so like I, collectively gaslit about the seriousness and significance of that day. So I want to come back to that. But first, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, <laughs> so maybe we could say a thing or two about uh, who we are, each of us, and this project that we want to embark on together. And just for fun, I'll go first. Sounds good. Uh, my name is Nick. I have a uh, long history of being outside the church, coming to the church, have an undergraduate degree in Bible and theology, pastoral ministry. I've worked in multiple churches. I've written church curriculum. Uh, I went to seminary, got a master's in theological studies. Uh, and currently I am, uh, like I said earlier, an archivist in a uh, church organization. So not a historian. People often mistake uh, working in archives for having historical training. I'm not a trained historian, uh, but I work with historians in facilitating their research um, and also uh, manage the historical record uh, for churches. So it's something, something I care a lot about and, and have a long relationship with. Uh, both in the academic biblical studies, academic theology side, studying scripture, learning the languages, um, and kind of an, uh, an obsessive church watcher for churches uh, similar to mine or my own church, but also churches just across the, across the spectrum. So I, I, I pay a lot of attention, probably too much. And so I want to take a little bit of that uh, obsessive attention that I've been paying to uh, especially figures on the Christian far right and uh, have discussions with you and kind of I don't know, sh share our knowledge with each other, collaborate. Um, I think in some places we will see eye to eye. In some places we probably come from different assumptions or explanations or accounts of, you know, what is what is going on? on the Christian far right. Well, what's going on and why can I not manage to look away? So I'm looking forward to having those conversations with you, but what's your, what's your background both uh, personally and with the, with the subject matter? Yeah. So I grew up um, in an organization that I, I now refer to as a cult uh, growing up in it. I bristled at that uh, label. Um, and that might be a conversation for a whole other day. In my recollection, it, it, it was not a super political organization. Like we were, I felt like we were fairly apolitical. It would. And what time period would this be? I was born in '86. If I'm going to date myself, and I was <laughs> there uh, till I was about 25. So about 2012, 2013 is when I finally left. Okay. Um, that particular group. And at at one point, you know, I, I remember. They had bumper stickers that said, my sufficiency is God, not government. Uh, so we, we've, we very rarely talked about political stuff. But in the time that I've left, the people who, who remained, many of them, as I've kept up with them on social media, have gone all in on some of this very um, just right, Christian, far right type stuff, which is interesting because from a theological perspective, they they differ very significantly from some of the very fundamentalist uh, conservative Christians that we're going to talk about in some su very significant ways, but from a political standpoint are 
very similarly aligned in, in lots of ways, conspiracy theories, anti-vax, um, uh, Democrats are the devil, right? Uh, all, all of these things. So I grew up in an organization that I, I didn't feel like was super political. And then all of a sudden people that I grew up with are, are extremely right wing in a way that, that kind of shocks me. I mean, I was pretty conservative when I first met you. I you probably remember that we met in seminary and, you know, I tried to toe the conservative line for the first, you know, year and a half, two years of seminary. So that's where I came from. So I was semi-conservative, but I didn't feel like I was conspiracy theory conservative. So I've got a personal interest in it because some of the people that like I know and respect and grew up with all are all of a sudden almost unrecognizable to me in some of the things that they're espousing. But also, you know, uh, I went to seminary where you did, um, got my master of divinity with the hope of going into church ministry. I've been a church pastor now for uh, over six years. Um, and so I'm seeing a lot of these things affect people that I know and, and that I work with on a professional level and shepherd to a degree. And so I'm fascinated by it. I'm concerned about it. And, and I think some of the stuff we're going to talk about, uh, it matters because it's having very real impacts in the lives of people that I know and love. I, I will say that when I uh, first met you in seminary, which I, I think I think we moved in within a couple of days of each other, and we were not a, not immediate next door neighbors, but we both lived in the seminary housing, and we were a you know a one minute walk from each other's house. Yeah. And I remember a day, I think just doing basic registration, uh, signing up for ID cards, that kind of thing. A day walking back to your place, and I, I remember mentioning the obviousness uh, with which I uh, affirm the theory of evolution, the, the basic correctness of Darwin's account, right? And as I recall, we were walking and I said something along those lines and I took a few steps and looked back and you were just looking at me at like, you mean like the theory of evolution? <laughs> like, okay, so so I remember you striking me as pretty conservative yeah but then we yeah. had classes together and uh that bore me out uh on yes you were very conservative but also uh you never struck me as conspiratorial or given over to conspiratorial thinking but rather uh you are one of, you have been in my experience one of the most uh open-minded in the sense of considering either both sides of a of a uh, bipolar argument or all sides of a complicated nu uh, nuanced argument, uh, considering all views and really assessing them critically and being willing to go where the evidence leads you, which is, I, is a rare thing. Uh, and at least it's a rare thing in my experience. And that's one of the reasons that I'm kind of excited to get to start having regular uh, discussions with you on, on issues that I think matter. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I think my first memory of you, you were actually helping us move in and you asked me, so like, so who are you reading? Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that my answer at the time was like Francis Chan and David Platt. I think we're like some of the people. And I think you mentioned like Greg Boyd and I was like, who is that? And then you, you mentioned some <laughs> things and shared like a video. It's like, ah, things are a little liberal for me. Um, uh, so I tell people, when, you know, uh, when they ask me about my friendship with you and who you are, that uh, probably for the last five or six years, you are one of the most influential people 
in terms of who I've become. Um, because you were just so patient in the way that you would, uh, <laughs> um, like you would legitimately hear me out and, and respectfully hear me. And then just, you know, you just like slide some resources my way and be like, have you considered this? Um, and then all of a sudden I like, uh, I end up being like a year or two behind you in sort of your, uh, progression of, of where you go. So for better or worse, it, you know, you, you are to credit or to blame for who I've become. <laughs> um, and then on Twitter. I was at a preaching conference and they had a hashtag and I had never been on Twitter before. So I like joined this Twitter thing. And I remember you were like one of the first people to retweet and introduce me. So a lot of the mutuals that we still have are sort of from that. So even my, my Twitter presence, which I like now live on, um, is in large part, uh, in thanks to you. So. Yeah. Well, uh, in Twitter, uh, I believe that the, the pupil has become the master and you have what, five times as many followers as I have. <laughs> Well, some but of that, I'm though, not, I think I'm is not because salty about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've been sort of intentionally anonymous on Twitter for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think I use it to, like, make splashy things and, you know, cause robust discussion in ways that are probably not as nuanced as you would like to be. Um, and so I think, you know, your careful nuanced argument doesn't lead to the kind of widespread engagement. <laughs> um, I actually remember, like, one of our conversations was – you said, who are the people who are behind the people who become popular? So I think it was Brian McLaren at the time. You said, somebody's got to write the stuff that Brian McLaren reads, and then he becomes popular. Um, I think we had that conversation that, you know, sort of you wanted to be the one who was writing the stuff that the people <laughs> who were becoming popular were reading. And then, um, so I don't know, at least on Twitter, it almost seems to have become that way a little bit. Yeah, it's 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 a very sort of uh, Palpatine and Darth Vader kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but now, actually, the the description that you give of, you know, my my nefarious influence, uh, slipping you things that are kind of one step ahead of where you are, then coaxing you along. I mean, in part, yes, I I do have a theological perspective. I do have a view that I. All other things being equal, I will try to to pull people toward, and you know, in in the in interest of uh, transparency, we can we can get into that. I'll, I will just go down a genealogy of here's uh, here's who I've read, who's who, here is who has influenced me uh, in uh, general social and cultural matters, uh, political economic matters, uh, theological biblical studies. I'm happy to get into any of that. Um, but I also, in a lot of ways, I don't care where you are. I'm fascinated to discuss all of those issues with someone who has a passion for it or an interest in it and has their own perspective and the things that they believe in. And if you're someone who gets a lot of... Um, a lot of satisfaction out of reading Francis Chan. That's fine. I am cool with that. And there are probably seven or eight different kind of directions that we could go off from there based on what, well, what is it about Francis Chan that's interesting to you? There, There is in the broad world of Christian devotional writing, theological writing, there is so much that is of benefit that, that can be applied in different ways that is edifying. And I'm happy to help people find what it is that, it, that speaks to them. And most of it is not dangerous. 
right? If you want to, if you want to stay reading Francis Chan or Francis Chan adjacent materials, I think that that can be satisfying to your soul and can be edifying to you as a person, can build you up for uh, participation in a community. But then there's material that is, I think, overtly dangerous, which is a lot of what we're here to talk about today and throughout the life of this podcast. So let's talk about that for just a second. Um, uh, as people who have made podcasts know, coming up with a name for a podcast is like one of the hardest things about a podcast. So why are we settling or why did we, why did we land on all the rage? Well, it's a pun, you see. Because <laughs> something that's all the rage is very popular. And something that seems to be very popular in the United States right now is a lurching to the right in a lot of our evangelical, and I would say especially our white evangelical institutions. But it's a pun because it plays on two things. It is increasingly popular to find a kind of nationalist, illiberal, opposed to small d democracy, almost borderline theocratic kind of Christian language and Christian political identity uh, that is becoming increasingly popular, as we'll talk about. And it's also, I think, genuinely animated by a kind of anger that sometimes very transparently looks like rage. You know, we'll look at images from January 6th, and I mean, you can see the outward, overt expression of rage directed against uh, you know, symbols of, of uh, national unity, right? But sometimes it looks like other forms of anger, and I think it often takes a form of a, a sort of seething resentment or a terminal dislike or disgust at the types of people that Christian far right have identified as their enemies or as God's enemies, as the enemies of the gospel. And I think that there is a real through line of anger, resentment, uh, disgust, and sometimes boiling over into active rage that animates a lot of this rightward. Uh, it's not rightward drift anymore. I think it's a rightward lurch that we're taking. So that's, yeah. that's what it means to me. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I remember thinking, like, I live in, in southern Indiana, and it is not at all uncommon to be driving through towns and neighborhoods here in southern Indiana and seeing fuck Joe Biden flags hanging from people's houses, right? And, and in my mind, I'm like, but what did he do to you, right? So there, there really is this, this visceral disgust, this hatred, this rage, this anger towards liberals in general um, that I... In my experience, most people can't articulate. Like I say, why do you hate him? You know, and it, it's just this, and I think blinding rage is almost a thing, and they don't know why they can't explain it. Um, and I think you're right. That is what is animating so much of this this movement to the right um, that for many people is inarticulable. Um, but also, because of the pun, uh, it also allows us to talk about anything, what's going on. So we're not locked <laughs> into a very specific niche category that if something happens that we want to talk about and it's all the rage, you know, we can talk about it. <laughs> so the second part of the podcast is an investigation of the Christian far right, right? A podcast investigating the Christian far right, which automatically is probably going to raise some hairs on some people's necks. So it's probably good that we, we 
sort of define our terms and discuss what we mean by the Christian far right. So to start with that, I want to read a quote that will give us sort of a baseline, and then we can compare and contrast from that quote so we have a clear picture of, of what it means when we say that we're investigating the Christian far right. So this particular quote comes from the book Taking America Back for God by Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead. It's a book about Christian nationalism, and they provide a definition that I think is super helpful with some left and right limits, and then from there we can either uh, narrow down or expand. So in their introduction, they write... Christian nationalism is a cultural framework, a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. But the Christianity of Christian nationalism is of a particular sort. The Christianity of Christian nationalism represents something more than religion. It includes assumptions of nativism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and heteronormativity, along with divine sanction for authoritarian control and militarism. It is as ethnic and political as it is religious. And that, as far as Christian nationalism goes, and the experience that I've had with with people who seem to be caught up in what I would consider the Christian far right. That sort of encapsulates it pretty clearly for me, but what would you either add or take away or clarify with that as a definition for the kinds of topics that we're going to be talking about? Well, first of all, I would say if those are the things that are of concern to you, it's not surprising that you become angry when they're threatened, right? Right. Because you've enveloped an entire, an entire worldview and participation in your imagined community or your community as you understand it. You've, you've wrapped all of that up with kind of ultimate truth or ob- objective truth or just your, your sense of reality. And so the idea that the, of that being threatened, it's going to provoke a, a really heated response when you come up against it. I, I don't want to, as we go forward, you know, today we're, get, we're talking about uh, January 6th. We're going to talk a little bit more about that um, and the role specifically of Christian nationalism in the events leading up to and on January 6th. But I don't want that to give the false impression that Christian nationalism is primarily what we mean by the Christian far right. Because I, I, I think it's in some ways broader and in some ways narrower than that. But a lot of it is, is simply a uh, religious instinct or religious impulse that is, to my mind, really wrapped up in fundamentalism, although not all fundamentalists are inherently far right. There's a kind of uh, uh, fundamentalist pietism that can be strangely apolitical or have uh, political obligations uh, across the board or that don't map up to the American left-right dichotomy at all. But there, I think that a galvanizing component of the Christian far right, as I understand it, is a fundamentalist impulse. And so I'm going to read briefly from Erling Jorstad, who published in 1970. So well in advance of the time period that we're looking at, but primarily about 
the inheritors of the fundamentalist movement of the 1920s and about Machen's fallout with Princeton, which led to the creation of first the PCA and then the OPC. Mm-hmm. And then Machen had a sort of acolyte. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pop in here. When you say PCA and OPC, just in case we have listeners who may not be familiar with that, that's the Presbyterian Church of America and then the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, right? Correct. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Machen, who was sort of directly involved in the creation of both of those because he kept finding, oh, I've established a new church. Oh, it's not conservative enough. Oh, I've established a new church. It's also not conservative enough. Uh, He had an acolyte who thought that Machen was a liberal and had not gone far enough, who founded the ACCC, which was sort of an answer to the World Council of Churches. Uh, But the ACCC is the American Council of Christian Churches. Founded in, I believe, 1953, and then it had an international offshoot called the ICCC, the International Council of Christian Churches, and that's Carl McIntyre. So that's kind of what this book is about. But there's a passage, there's a passage in it that really highlights the 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 specific impulse or tendency of the kind of figures that we're talking about. And the language in this, it's published in 1970, so it defaults to, you know, the the man as the universal signifier, and so all the pronouns are masculine. But in this case, it's pretty accurate because uh, we're talking about a, a church circles where women are n- not allowed to be in any form of church leadership or leadership in the home or leadership in society. So this actually uh, is a case where the the old defaults sort of uh, accurately convey what we're talking about today. But he says, the fundamentalist of the far right constructs his fortress for preserving Christianity and America on the rock bed of theological doctrine. Formal, precisely worded statements or propositions given to him by God in the Bible are the indestructible boulders of truth which eternally withstand the erosion of doubt, compromise, and ambiguity. They were created by God and are perfect and complete in themselves. So long as the believer accepts them as the creator intended, he will be protected against the powers of evil and will preserve the true faith for all generations. The entire theology and and ideology of the ultra-fundamentalist movement is based on its confidence in the efficacy of propositional doctrine. God has endowed the believer with sufficient reasoning powers to allow him to construct infallible statements. The statements are without error so long as they are based exclusively on the revealed word of God found in the inerrant Bible. The believer expresses his gratitude for such knowledge and witnesses to his faith by assenting to these doctrines. Men cannot know the truth unless it is expressed in a public manner open to scrutiny by other believers. Only propositional doctrine gives them that opportunity. Thus, only that form of expression is verifiable. And that's from The Politics of Doomsday uh, by Erling Jorstad. And I, I think that that encapsulates a lot of it in part because it's not explicitly political. Right? A lot of the Christian far-right uh, figures and institutions and movements that I'm thinking about don't start out as you know, shills for the Republican Party don't primarily see themselves as um, as doing something like Christian nationalism. They are 
I think in good faith, interpreting or simply seeking to interpret the Bible, teach the Bible, express the gospel, express doctrine as they understand it. But they understand it with such an utter sense of absolute certainty and a complete inability to consider that they themselves might be mistaken in their reading. And so they view anyone who disagrees with them as either dishonest or simply demonic. Right. Right. They cannot conceive of the co- of the idea of good faith disagreement among Christians, and in part that's because of the doctrinal commitments that they've that they've come to. Because there's a host of doctrines we don't need to, don't need to get into all of them. We will discuss these in later episodes. But the doctrine of uh, perspicuity of Scripture, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. If you if you take these things and have kind of a hard belief in all of them. You, you can't be wrong. So this is going to be a, a fascinating discussion because I, I think what becomes complicated here is which comes first. Is it, is it legitimately a good faith religious basis that then leads to the secondary effect of these far right cultural and political things? Or is it a, a commitment to a, cultural and political order and a commitment to power through which appeal to inerrant texts and and by extension inerrant interpretations becomes the the vehicle by which we can achieve cultural hegemony and so i think whitehead and perry are going to argue that it's the second but it sounds like you're arguing that it's the first um so i think that's going to lead to some some fascinating conversation yeah at the very least i think there is a lot of the first because what we're discussing is not monolithic, right? There's a, an entire continuum of both individuals, organizations, actors along this. And I think that th- there are places in that continuum where sort of good faith, genuine conviction about, mm-hmm. well, this is simply what the Bible teaches, or this is simply if you're doing systematic theology properly, the interpretation that you will come to. And then there are places where, like, very clearly, um, y- you know, when you get to the point of Donald Trump holding up the Bible in front of the church, this is just a guy who has identified a mark. What? And, and, I th- <laughs> and so I think that there's, a, there's a, a wide continuum between the two. And I'm personally much more interested in the first part of that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, Milton, Milton Friedman was an economist at the Chicago School of Economics. Often he's described as a libertarian economist. Libertarians will recoil when you say that. They'll say, no, he's basically uh, Adam Smith. He's not, an, he's not a libertarian. But he's definitely on the libertarian end of the neoliberal economics uh, school. And he, he had this idea for social change or an account of how social change happens. And he's, his idea was you can't always reliably cause a crisis or predict a crisis, but crises happen. And 
what determines what changes get implemented when a crisis happens? Well, it's the ideas that happen to be lying around at the moment somebody needs ideas. Right. And he very much you know, put that into effect on uh, the first 9-11 uh, when uh, right. the U.S. backed coup in Chile uh, put Pinochet in power and yep. the United States and various international economic bodies brought Milton Friedman and his fellow Chicago School economists to Chile. And for, for years, they had been building up a set of ideas so right. that they would be lying around if there were a crisis. Right. And they restructured Chile's ent entire economy. And my, my sense of the Christian far right, the figures that we're going to be talking about, the uh, elements that we're going to be uh, investigating, is they are constantly percolating ideas and then those ideas are just laying around for some less good faith, more clearly politically motivated actor to kind of take up, maybe slightly rebrand it. And then all of a sudden, you know, 17 Republican-led state legislatures are simultaneously passing legislation uh, on the right. basis of that. Right. But there's this little percolating chamber in the Christian far right, uh, among you know, pastors of churches of all sizes. Mm -hmm. But often these pastors are very active on social media, especially on Twitter. It seems that they have uh, carved out in their contract a very generous uh, sermon preparation time. And a lot of that sermon preparation time goes to tweeting, I don't know, every 20 minutes all day, every day. Uh, I'm, I'm speculating. Feeling attacked. <laughs> But also professors at seminaries, especially some of the conservative Southern Baptist seminaries, uh, leaders of parachurch organizations. I'm thinking of kind of professionally religious figures on the Christian right. So not, right. you know, someone at a think tank that has Judeo-Christian values in somewhere in its mission statement. They're, I mean, they're included, but I'm primarily thinking about, and they're they're included, and they're also, I think. There are resources to study these figures, right? Right, right. I think that there is a component of seemingly apolitical or not, not apolitical, but not directly involved in the political process. Like they are just pastors of churches, leaders of parachurch uh, ministries, professors of homiletics or apologetics at conservative seminaries. Mm -hmm. And what they do on a day-to-day -day basis is not uh, turning the turning the wheels of power, right? Right. But they are creating this sort of froth of repugnant, toxic ideas that then become well, they become the ideas that happen to be laying around when someone like Trump becomes president, right? So just for the sake of clarity, and I know that I want to, we want to be careful here, but let's name a couple of names of some people that might be recognizable that are these primarily Christian religious institutional leaders um, that are maybe sowing the seeds that the everyday pastor are studying or listening to. Um, so I think one that, you know, comes to mind because of some, some recent things is, is John MacArthur, right? Um, 
John MacArthur is a very, very well-known, extremely well-respected and highly regarded theologian who's extremely conservative. And his work, because of um, his master's seminary, because his sermons have been broadcast on the radio forever, because he has a Bible with his name on it and all of these commentaries, right? His work has been replicated and his views are replicated among so many pastors. And he's got such a I'm going to use this term carefully, but cult following, right? If you criticize John MacArthur on Twitter, be careful because his acolytes are, will, will come at you. Or so I've heard. Uh, <laughs> um, so who might be a couple, two or three other prominent names of people who are within the circles that, that we want to be discussing? Well, John MacArthur is a good mention. And like you said, he has sort of been sowing seeds on the wind that have borne fruit in themselves, right? You think of the multiple churches, especially across Canada, who defied COVID restrictions, specifically on, his, on the theological basis of what they learned at the Master Seminary. There's a name that I think most people who are engaged in Christian Twitter will be familiar with, and a name that I think maybe fewer of them will, even though he's a big name, but he's, I think, less forward in Christian Twitter, but that's James White and Michael O'Fallon, who I, I can only think of as a pair now. Speaking of a emperor and Darth Vader kind of relationship, uh, Michael Fallon is the emperor figure behind both James White and has led James White in the last five years into a just crazy conspiratorial direction. Uh, the The difference between you know, the James White of 2012 and the James White of 2022 can hardly be exaggerated. But he's also the emperor figure behind James Lindsay. And James Lindsay is? James Lindsay, who at this point still has not announced that he is converting to Christianity, but I, uh, it, it, may, it may happen sooner than we think. But for a long time, a public, public atheist, he was involved in, the, um, in an academic grievance hoax around he... Uh, his version of it is he submitted ridiculous, fake academic papers to a bunch of journals and got actual, legit academic journals to publish them. Um, if, if you dig a little bit into it, uh, basically, he submitted – he and several other people took on a full-time job for uh, multiple months – and basically did academic work in fields that they don't respect and uh, for the most part did not get through the peer review process of serious journals. But then there was a one of these sort of pay-to-play journals that would publish anything if you sign up to be a member of that group. But, and so he sort of initially put, put his mark on the on – the, public uh, public intellectual sphere with this with this grievance hoax but he's very much or at least initially was very much involved in sort of the intellectual dark web the IDW sort of you know heterodox you know uh, people who would not say I'm not I'm not liberal or conservative I'm a classical conservative and then five years later they're all supporting Trump and uh, pushing ivermectin as a cure for covid and uh, you know, so he sort of started there and has just gotten more sense. And the reason he's gotten more sense is because he has Michael O'Fallon sort of whispering in his ear. But he's become 
a major influence. Well, he and Michael O'Fallon have become a major influence on another group that I'm sure we'll be talking about a lot. And that's the far right conservative, not even conservative resurgence anymore. They're just the conservative lead of the Southern Baptist Church, especially around uh, Founders Ministry. So that's Tom Askall, who's the uh, prospective next president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, but an, an arch conservative, a fundamentalist, and and the, the Founders men as a group. And then another uh, another group that we might mention, uh, Doug Wilson, the pastor of Christ Church in uh, Moscow, Idaho, and his entire sort of uh, you know, fiefdom up there. That's uh, a great word. An, another example of these far right figures who, yes. like, they're open about their political views. They're not subtle. They're not. Uh, uh, they're not hesitant to put out their um, their views, which mostly tend toward, you know, Trump is still the rightful president. The election was stolen. Um, COVID was a uh, a bioweapon developed in a lab. Uh, we had the we had the vaccine before COVID was ever released because it's been around forever. Um, it's sort of these absolutely just wild, unhinged, unrealistic conspiracy theories that in a lot of ways have traction with or kind of you can map onto the entire QAnon ecosystem of conspiracy theories. But what's fascinating about these figures is, for the most part, they're not QAnoners. They never were drawn in by the idea that QAnon is a real person or that Trump was enlisted by some deep state insider. They, they, or even uh, the aspects of QAnon around, you know, Democrats are. The you know, Democratic leadership are trafficking women in order to harvest their children so that they can harvest a substance called adrenochrome from the blood of young children so that they can do blood transfusions on themselves and keeping themselves looking um, as young as Nancy Pelosi forever. Uh, that's a QAnon belief that for the most part, that the, these parts of the Christian far right, or at least these sort of leading figures, never fell into. Right. Even though it, it advanced a lot of their on-the-ground political preferences or beliefs in general. They do believe the Democrats are evil. They just don't believe that about them, right? Right, right. And I think a reason for it is they already have their mythology. They already have the, the, the sort of skeletal elements that hold their political views uh, or their – for lack of a better word, Christian national views, their the myth of a Christian nation, all of that's held together without the need to create a new mythology, which is what QAnon is sort of doing for secular far-right figures. Right. That, at least that's my take. Yeah. And so I think what's fascinating about this is that these, these characters that we're talking about on the Christian far-right are not necessarily – a hundred percent aligned on all aspects of theology, right? So um, we, we'll have among this group, we'll have people who, who differ on baptism or who differ on the Eucharist um, and differ on ecclesiology, some pretty significant theological issues. And yet they have found this common ground, right? Around some very specific issues, especially over the last few years in opposition. Like that slavery wasn't that bad. Yes. Right, right. Um, so in opposition to feminism, 
um, you know, uh, not just women in ministry, but women in, in leadership in, in lots of spheres, right? You have this woman that could possibly be leading the free world, uh, and yet there's evangelicals voting for her that don't even believe that, that a woman should preach at the pulpit. Are, are, should, could this change the face of how evangelicals believe in the woman's role? I don't think it'll change the way evangelicals believe about women's roles. I think it's, it has sparked a discussion. And quite frankly, feminism has gained a foothold in many evangelical churches. Do you think and that's a good of, thing? No, I don't. Not at all. Why not? Uh, well, because we're about the gospel. The culture doesn't dictate truth. The gospel dictates truth. Right? Um, so there's a, there's a very strong strand of misogyny that um, binds us together. Um, opposition to over the past few years, and we're going to do an entire episode on this, um, critical race theory, opposition to liberalism and Democrats in, in general, um, and opposition to secularism. So they have legitimate theological differences, and yet they've found common ground in opposition to these things, a, a, a deep opposition to all things LGBTQ, right? And so and viewing these particular things as threats, uh, as they would say, to the gospel, but but maybe and maybe they really do believe that. It, it, um, you and I might differ on whether they actually believe that or whether they're just using that to maintain cultural hegemony. Um, but when we talk about it, like we've, we've talked about, how do we define who we're talking about? And one of I think one of the heuristic devices we came up with is like, these are the kind of people who use the word woke as an insult, right? What might be some other, like, we're talking about the Christian far right. We're talking about people who blank. I think a heuristic that has been helpful for me is that there were, there's a number of organizations or individuals that blessedly before I started uh, obsessing about the Christian far right, I thought of as kind of the conservative edge of evangelicalism. And then I realized, oh no, there are entire communities for whom that is the liberal edge. So they look at the gospel coalition and they see it as a far left group that is uh, dedicated to, well, to all the things that you just mentioned. You know, they say gospel coalition is Marxist, it's pro-Black Lives Matter, it's pro-critical race theory, it's pro-LGBT. I just wish I could go back to when I thought that the Gospel Coalition were the conservatives in the room. I think to to highlight this further, we take somebody like Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, architect of the conservative resurgence of the SBC in, in the 80s and 90s, right? And Al Mohler is liberal to the people that we're talking about, right? Yeah. He is- John Piper. John Piper. John Piper's woke, right, to these yeah. people. Uh, and I'm loath to use that word because I'll talk about that later. But yes, so these people consider Al Mohler and John Piper and Tim Keller, right? Tim Keller is like super liberal to these people. Uh, it, and to you and I, were like, these are so, some of the most conservative voices five years ago, six years ago, right? And all of a right. sudden now, because they dared, and, and we'll talk about this in a future episode, they dared to give honor to Martin Luther King Jr., right? Um, exactly. They are now bought into the liberal zeitgeist um, and all this stuff. So we're talking about the Christian far right. We're talking about the people who think that Al Mohler is liberal. <laughs>
so I guess one of the questions that, that we want to answer for ourselves and for people who are listening is this is fascinating to, to you and I um, for similar and different reasons. Um, but ultimately, why, why do we care and why should anyone care about these super fringe far right Christians and their little um, theological silos, you know, having these conversations on social media? Uh, what impact does that have on the real world? Why should anybody care? Why should we pay attention? Um, and so to talk about that, we're going to kind of shift back to where we began uh, looking at January 6th. And I think you've got pulled up the report uh, on Christian nationalism. And so what we're doing here is we're going to sort of look at um, five or six years after some of the events we're going to talk about in a later episode, some of the fruit that is being born from the conversations that began in these far right circles and the impact that it's had on our national discourse and uh, political stage. Right. So, in a, you know, if we if we go back the we can kind of draw lines from where the Christian right is today. And there's all these different benchmarks that we can go back to. And in some ways you can go back, as we'll talk about in an episode very soon, to MLK 50. I think that was a real activating event for a lot of the specific folks that we're talking about. And, and real um, in quick, some just ways you say what MLK 50 was. That the Gospel Coalition in particular in 2018 held a conference themed MLK 50 Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop. Speakers included uh, Charlie Dates, Jackie Hill Perry, Matt Chandler, uh, Mika Edmondson, uh, Russ Moore, who another one of these figures that uh, I wish that I remember when Russ Moore was the most conservative person I could think of. Uh, right. But he's a, he's a far left loony to, to the people we're talking about. Uh, John Piper was also there. Um, and so it's it, because it's a gospel coalition event, which is a big parachurch ministry that does kind of straddle the center as well as the conservative parts of the evangelical church. Other other parachurch organizations or personal ministries were involved as well. So like Desiring God had a specific presence there. The ERLC, which is a committee of the um, of the Southern Baptist Church, their um, sort of uh, social engagement committee. Um, had, had a presence there, uh, but it was all under the, the Gospel Coalition banner. And yeah, and like I said, I think that is an event that kind of broke some brains on the far right because it seemed to it seemed to really cement for them like we are losing the, the grip that we should have on what gets presented as the gospel, which is what the Gospel Coalition is ostensibly um, – kind of centered around it's the you know we have all these differences on different areas but we can agree on the gospel but when you start tying the gospel to social issues or justice issues or um civil rights or anti-racism any of those things the far right just sort of absolutely um frothing at the mouth and and writing response pieces and that's part of why you know uh, TGC is is too far left for them, right. right? But you can go back behind that to you know in some ways the election of Trump 
in some ways go back to 2013 and uh, in the response to the Zimmerman verdict, the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter movement. In some ways, you can go maybe 2008, the election of Barack Obama. Uh, there are ties between the Christian far right and the Tea Party. In some ways, you can go back uh, maybe 1953, Brown v. Board of Education. And there have been uh, long-standing Christian far-right movements organizing since then that either use that as a central organizing principle, look at, look at Falwell, whom we'll come back to, we'll have episodes on, uh, Jerry Falwell, who refused to integrate. I, I, I mean, that's sort of the genesis. When historians look back at that, that's really the genesis of the religious right, uh, at least as a political movement, right? They, the the story as it's told now is that it it um, the moral majority was about abortion and and all of that, but really, uh, the religious right began as a response to forced integration and the right of certain Christian institutions to maintain their right to be segregated racially um, in the seventies. Uh, you know, and then even before that, you mentioned um, Machen. Um, and the, the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, and, and we'll get into some really fascinating stuff too um, in Kevin Cruz's book, One Nation Under God, and the way that uh, Christianity was co-opted by some, some folks to, to oppose communism and uphold capitalism and the way that the sort of evangelical darling Billy Graham was involved in all that. So it's really, there's lots of tendrils um, that, that feed into this. Um, and so to, to pinpoint, you know, where did this begin is, is sort of a fun exercise because you're right. I mean, there, every one of these things is almost a seminal moment, but it has been brewing in, in different ways for, you know, now almost a hundred years, if we go back to the twenties and some of that initial fundamentalist modernist stuff, and, and it's finding I expression now in ways that is been sort of under the surface all along and then has, has peaked above the surface at different periods and then sort of subsided um, and is, is coming back to the forefront and, and erupting in ways like we see in this photo here, um, mm -hmm. what we began talking about January 6, 2021, uh, where a group of people for the first time in over a hundred years stormed and entered violently the capital of the United States under certain banners, one of which we see in, in this photograph, right? Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Um, so, it, and I guess the reason I'm saying this is to talk about the, the things that we're talking about are not ideas without consequence. They- Right, we, this we isn't saw, just us uh, litigating our Twitter beefs. <laughs> right, right, this is a, yeah. It, it will, be, like, it will oh. be that, but it's not just that. <laughs> it's not just that, it, it's bigger than that. There are real consequences to the, to the conversations that are happening that begin, you know, in sort of these small corners, but then erupt all the way onto um, the point where had it been successful, I, I, I don't know, right? Had, had these people achieved what it seems like their aim was, I don't know if we'd be having this conversation, right? It, it, it would have been- Living in a different United States? It would have been a drastically, drastically different United States. Um, Mike Pence might not be alive, right? Certain um, members of Congress might not be alive. So these these ideas have consequences, and because it didn't work, <laughs> uh, some some really smart people have gone back and have taken a look at that January sixth insurrection, 
and sort of looked at the role that Christian nationalism um, played in it. And as we're going to talk about, that very same Christian nationalism has been fed by this Christian far-right um, discourse. So I'll let you jump into this report. Yes, yes. And Thomas, I know there are people who will see this or hear this and they'll think you are just histrionic, liberal, that you're uh, playing up the January 6th thing for, I don't know, sympathy or attention or because we have, whether you want to call it memory holing or gaslighting, the, the way that this has continued to be insufficiently discussed, especially at the top tier. You know, you want to talk about the idea that the, the mainstream media has uh, hegemonic control of the discourse uh, and pushes a liberal agenda. Well, there is so much going on with the January 6th commission, with charges that are being made by the Department of Justice, with huge, I mean, we're talking 100-page documents laying out the case against any individual uh, who has been charged, who has pled guilty, or who has flipped in order to help build a bigger case against people, bigger ups, to the point that now a charge of seditious conspiracy against Stuart Rhodes, who's the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers, and who accidentally shot his eye out and who who was not at the Capitol because he had already been banned from Washington, D.C. for uh, for a, a tendency toward violence, but who had, along with his group, the Oath Keepers, uh, stashed caches of weapons in Virginia in preparation for what happened on January 6th. And so you talk about the possibility of... Well, if things had gone slightly differently, if things had gone slightly differently and the Oath Coopers had retrieved or coordinated access to those weapons, then the, the second half of the day on January 6th, which kind of started stretching into interminable lengths and uh, people got slowly let out to the, you know, until what was it, about three, in the, three o'clock in the morning when they finally reconvened and Mike Pence certified the election would have been a much, much different day. And all that to say that this report is actually uh, very important for people to familiarize themselves with. It's about a 65-page document. It's hosted on the um, BJ, bjconline.org, which and uh, BJC is the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. They're one of the two um, groups who collaborated to put this document together, the other being the Freedom From Religion Foundation. And so these two groups have, uh, have put, put this report together. And so this is the cover of the report. And if we look briefly through the, the table of contents, there are a handful of kind of preliminary sections. And so they've brought in um, just top-tier scholars who know about 
Christian nationalism, that that is their area of academic study or journalistic um, reporting. And so people that we've already cited, Whitehead and Perry, on kind of a short definition of Christian nationalism, uh, the distinctions between white Christian nationalism and the and what Jamar Tisby calls the patriotic witness of black Christians, who for a number of striking and what I would think would be obvious reasons, um, the black Christian church conceives of the concept of the nation, the idea of what would constitute a Christian nation, conceive of that quite a bit differently than predominantly white Christian groups. And not to be clear, because I know some of the figures that we're discussing on the Christian far right who make, uh, race issues and discussing race and their kind of bailiwick and who would jump on any chance to poke uh, poke holes in this distinction between, oh, there is no white church or black church, there's just the church, and then kind of smuggle concepts into that. Um, it's not that black Christians as such are... I don't know, ideologically different on the basis of being black Christians. Like that doesn't have any um, automatic relationship to how you conceive of a concept like patriotism or nationalism or what a what would constitute a Christian nation. But as a matter of actual historical development, a a church that stands in different relationship to the power structures in a nation right. is going to uh, come to different conceptions of core ideas about the power of that nation, right? So that's a matter of historical contingency, not some sort of um, – or and it's not presented, if you read uh, Tisby's piece, it's not presented as some sort of uh, ontological fact about people who happen to be black, but – Blackness and whiteness have functional realities, functional reference. They refer to specific things, which is why uh, in general practice, you can't just take a sentence where we're talking about black people and white people or black Christians and white Christians or the black church and the white church and say, oh, well, if you flipped those two phrases, that would – that would be uh, inappropriate or or racist or you could never get away with saying that because in – Anytime that's pointed out, if you flip those two phrases, it would not be a true statement. Right. Because it's right. not something that happens. It doesn't flow from the color of one's skin. It flows from the way that our culture has treated people who look like us and people who don't look like us in very different ways. Precisely. Much, much more succinctly said. But so we have these kind of preliminary sections and then a, a couple of basically just laying out the groundwork of what actually happened with reams of supporting documentation. I think the last 15, uh, maybe the last 18 pages of this document are just the citations, the footnotes linking to uh, primary source material, video recordings, statements by the participants or by journalists who are embedded with the participants. So very well supported accounts of First, the events, people, and networks leading up to January 6th, and then um, about 25 pages laying out. Here is the role that white Christian nationalism clearly, demonstrably, and visibly had in the actual attack on the Capitol. So if we jump down to Section 5, 
events leading up to it. There were several events that, you know, there's no way that you could have known at the time. But when you look back, you know, on January 7th, you can look back at these events from following the election up until literally the day before the insurrection on January 5th. And there were multiple events that were held in with various degrees of uh, legality at the time. Some of them did not have permits. Some of them had permits, but they had permits for a very small event. And then they exceeded the bounds of what that permit would have allowed, allowed for that really served as sort of, uh, you could look at it as either test runs for what happened on the 6th or as sort of precipitating events that uh, continued to crescendo and build up into what happened on the 6th. And so the first of those was what was called the Million MAGA March. I, I don't believe they actually got a million uh, participants, but that was the that was the goal. That happened on November 14th. They and did, the but one there, I... was, there was fraud in the counting. <laughs> of course, they, they, they brought in, uh, they brought in briefcases full of fake non-people to <laughs> count against the people who, yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, but the one I remember the most was, because this was a Saturday, I got to see the whole, well, I participated via watching people live tweet it because it was broadcast pretty heavily on the on uh, news channels. And it was lots of uh, lots of simultaneous events. But the the Jericho March. Held what they call a let the church roar rally. And uh, according to people who organized it, there were two federal government employees who independently said that they had divine visions from dreams where God told them to let the church roar. But host, hosting this event and was uh, Eric Metaxas, who I'm sure we'll have to get into in a future episode. His, his biography of Bonhoeffer literally changed my life for the worse. <laughs> <laughs> But he, he was emceeing it, and it was it just fascinating as you read these accounts of the, the people who – and you can watch video of it too. It was all, all recorded. But people who would get up and speak and just say things that in hindsight just sound like, go do January 6th. And then he'd come up afterward and said, amen, God bless that. I, I could not agree more with that. And then – um, you know, they did some kind of uh, messianic Judaism LARPing. They had uh, shofars because they were, you know, embodying the whole idea of a Jericho march. The walls will come down. Lots of quotes throughout this. Then on December 12th, uh, Women for America First had a rally. And then on January 5th, Women for America First and other groups, including Ali Alexander's Stop the Steal, had events in Washington, D.C., including an event where Roger Stone spoke, Roger Stone having Oath Keepers, the same ones who had hidden uh, caches of guns in preparation for if anything should happen during the certification of the election on the 6th, that same group were providing security to Roger Stone and others who were speaking at these events on the 5th. 
And seeded throughout this, and you can you can see the document, so much evidence, both the signs that people had at all of these events and the explicit messages of the people who spoke and very frequently the people who prayed. Often a, a speech at one of these events would be somebody taking stage and praying for the, the quote-unquote rightful results of the election um, to be seen. So again, here's uh, Pastor Greg Locke speaking at one of these events on the 5th. And Andrew Seidel, who's writing this section, finishes this with, The violent Christian nationalism is explicit, and that was the message throughout all of these rallies held from December 2020 until the attack on January 6, 2021. They were remarkably consistent, preaching that God is on your side and creating a divine justification to convince good people to commit evil acts, including attempting to overthrow the United States government and overturn a free and fair election. Then the following section, section six, goes through all the events of the day of the insurrection and lots of um, references to this, specifically the imagery, right? Uh, there was the gallows, uh, famous in imagery, gallows with a noose to, uh, to quote unquote, hang Mike Pence. As the, as the crowds were chanting, not just on the 6th, those chants were also uh, recorded in events leading up to the 6th. Um, but also, in addition to the gallows, you had the cross, right? This cross, people worshipping at the cross on the east side of the Capitol during the attack. And see someone in a tr wearing a Trump flag as a cape with an American flag bowing in front of the cross. A number of flags that were present throughout the crowds, both milling out around outside of the Capitol and breaking into the Capitol. Of course, the Confederate flag with its uh, explicitly sort of Christian nationalist, uh, specifically white nationalist overtones. But then also the Christian flag, Jesus save signs, uh, portraits of Jesus in a MAGA hat, Trump flags, MAGA flags. Uh, present throughout. And again, all of this uh, heavily supported with uh, direct quotes uh, from people who were there uh, reporting. Not, not on to it. mention that there's so much of the imagery, um, but they talk about in there the prayer uh, of the people who stormed the Capitol, entered the Capitol, um, prayed to God, invoking Jesus to bless these actions, right? I mean, explicitly tying what they were doing to, to both divine command and, re and requesting uh, divine blessing. Yeah, so here on, here on page 34 of the document, they reproduce the prayer from the, the Senate dais with um, uh, the QAnon shaman, as he's called, standing up there. But uh, lots of evidence throughout this document uh, and externally, that the QAnon shaman, like, he self-describes as a pagan. He's either vegetarian or vegan. Um, not a, not by any means a traditional uh, Christian believer, but entangled in a lot of his, his public statements and his participation in prayers at various events, very much influenced by a lot of this um, explicitly what, what you would call orthodox, biblical, Christian uh, 
language, ideas, and so on. So he's there at this prayer at the dais. They reproduce the uh, entire text of the prayer and then summarize afterward the idea of the country being reborn and specifically reborn in Christ's holy name, which is how the prayer concluded, is central to Christian nationalism. This is also why uh, Roche, I'm not sure on that, Roche uh, described them as, quote, inviting Christ back into our state capital. They were seeking to return the nation to a mythical past that does not exist, but that mythical past is central to their identity. So, like I said, yeah, we'll have a link to this in the show notes. Uh, it is worth uh, worth reading the entire document if you are unfamiliar with the events leading up to the uh, insurrection, the contents of the insurrection. And if anybody has any uh, reservation and is just not sure, was it really as big a deal as it felt like on the day? Because the last uh, 15 months have not reinforced that idea. Ab absolutely was a pivotal moment in what, sh what should be our uh, understanding of what the Christian far right is and how powerful it seeks to be and potentially can be in the life of our country. Right. Right. And so that's why this matters, because ideas that have their genesis among, you know, maybe to some of our listeners, fringe Christian theological thought leaders um, are more far reaching. And, you know, like we said, it, we escaped that day narrowly. Had a few things gone differently, we'd be having a very different conversation right now. Um, so, and I think part of this is because we believe that ideas have consequences. Not that we are naive enough to think that we're going to, uh, that this little podcast is going to, is going to stop it. Um, but if we can, if we can understand it, if we can expose it, if we can, uh, talk about it, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some good somewhere that will come of it. Um, at the very least, maybe we'll feel better. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, it's, in a lot of ways, it's dark subject matter, and it's especially dark subject matter when it deals with theological rationale to dehumanize people, groups of people, when it deals with um, justifications to, do, to engage in egregious acts. And as we see, you know, dealing with the legitimacy of elections or the use of the election fraud narrative to disenfranchise people who might vote for the other party, or when it deals with trusting in bizarre alternative treatments for COVID-19 or refusing to get vaccinated because that has some special meaning to you based on your reading of Revelation. Uh, that it gets dark, um, but I'm still excited to get to have the opportunity to, to talk about it, to inspect it, to explore it, um, and see if we can, you know, make, make some sense of it. Yeah, I, I agree. Cause, um, and for me, it's personal, right? It, it's, I don't know any, 
buddy who stormed the Capitol. I do know people who were present at the protests, at some rally in, in DC. And I know a lot of people who have, have just bought in to all of this hook, line and sinker, right? Um, to the point where it, it, it's almost difficult for me to understand them. It, it's, it's difficult to have a conversation because it's gotten so bad that there's, there's almost seems to be no shared foundation for truth or reality. I don't, I don't often have a starting place uh, with some of this. And so maybe, maybe an outcome of this is it will at least help me understand and provide at least some sort of common ground to maybe have a conversation, maybe reach in there and, and find some sort of common ground again from which to work through. Um, I don't know, hopefully. Well, on that hopeful note. (laughs) Well, this has been uh, the first episode of All the Rage, a podcast investigating the Christian far right. We'll see you next time.